0: You know if you look back at the at the last like ten episodes or fifteen episodes we've done a f- we've been we've been doing a lot i think we started off more tech law oriented but we've been doing a lot of criminal law stuff these days, which is very interesting it's not something you you or I have practical experience in uh, neither of us practiced in that field and uh neither of us you, you teaching mean the field you mean the field of crime co- correct hmm. and neither of us um teach crime or criminal law um uh, I guess perhaps <laughs> we have taught class sessions that <laughs> constituted crimes, but uh, <laughs> de- perhaps I've definitely. Done that. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, it's it's just interesting to me that maybe it's part of why I enjoy it, guys. I just feel like I am learning a ton when we have guests who help me understand these issues better. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. No. I, I think. I think definitely. And
0: and learning is uh, great because
1: after all, we aspire to be America's faculty colloquium.
0: Uh, okay.
1: Yeah. Um, now, America may say. We don't want that, <laughs> 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 but but don't worry, we're here anyway. <laughs> yes, um, uh, yeah. So this is you know we, we want we want to hear it all. We want to study it all. We have a voracious appetite for all things law and legal theory and interesting.
0: Wouldn't you say? I certainly do. I've... I'm I'm a dilettante and enjoy very much being one. So <laughs> I want I want to learn about a lot of different things from a lot of different people. You, you, so you know. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, the show, more and more
1: people are listening to the show who we don't know, right? right. I mean, you know, not, we, not even North Dakota yet, but um, I don't even want to don't even just don't even. Dwell. We need to give up. Is there a law school in North Dakota?
0: Do they even have one over there?
1: Maybe. Um. Yes, of is, course there is, because there's one in every state except
0: Alaska. I OK, think. so there's yeah. it's like a University of North Dakota. What are law they doing? What are they doing? I don't Good know. Lord, so I lo- need to get on the Internet and do we this, need to identify a faculty <laughs> member there and who well, we would love talking to. Yeah and invite them on to be a guest because this is just ridiculous this is related to a little bit of follow-up i've got okay uh so i'm on facebook uh
1: because i do the facebook a little bit Sure, and and i'm talking to i'm talking to a friend answering some random question and this this other guy comes on uh listener jack oh see listener you get it yeah i got it listener jack i I won't give the last name he didn't i didn't even tell him i'd do the shout out but who said and, and listener jack says um uh oh i've got i don't have it queued up right in here. the
0: middle of a thread where you're conversing yeah i'm just with talking I'm I'm just talking to my, my Facebook, friend yeah yeah right? and he says um, so it's a friend of a friend
1: yeah and he and he says and 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 then the name of the friend am i really on this thread with the christian turner <laughs> i'm a very big oral argument fan whoa and i'm like i'm like wow
0: that's amazing it's of course it's amazing cause you, you must know. not live in north dakota <laughs>
1: Yeah. And, and and of course, I respond by saying, um, Joe Miller paid you for this, right? Oh,
0: uh, I did not do that.
1: Uh, but he said, he said, he said, no, he's been meaning to send us an email and to rate us on iTunes, which, of course, you should. That helps people find the show. Yeah. We get, you don't have to make an account. Yeah, you, I think you have to have an account. But if you've got an iTunes account, you can just do yeah, it. Definitely. But you don't have to leave a review. Although no. that would be nice. Yeah, we'd be, just, we would welcome a review. Just go on there and leave five stars. That's what you got to do. Awesome. I don't think it lets you leave less than five stars. You're, <laughs> oh, if if you're planning, now. if you're planning to do that, you yeah, I don't think that works. Um, but, but if you want to leave five stars, it's, it's easy. You just hit the five stars. That's all you got to do. <laughs> um, he, but he, then he says, I've even been considering taking a trip to North Dakota and downloading, an, <laughs> downloading an episode for a listen while I am there. Oh. Uh, that is, this is, this is a true oral argument uh I would say not fan. We don't have fan. The fellow traveler. Yeah, fellow traveler. And so so listen, any other listeners out there who are contemplating a trip uh across, you know, it across the country or to North Dakota or who live there just download a show. I would even say that I'm not going to tell people to do this. I'm not, what I'm about to say. I'm not saying okay. do this. I'm just saying if someone did this, it might count. If you've got a cell phone and you're flying over North Dakota, <laughs> I, we don't I'm really saying, know
0: the mecha- – we don't know enough about how the mechanics work to know if that would actually work. We don't know if it would work, um, and, and
1: and certainly I don't think it's legal, so I don't think anybody should do it. But boy, if someone did that, it would – that would give here's us a what I,
0: here's what I want. <laughs> I don't want – don't, I don't just want to – I demand it. Here's what I demand. <laughs> no. I demand that someone who knows someone who is a North Dakota resident and therefore a subscriber to a North Dakota coded – internet service provider <laughs> tell this person who they know who lives in north dakota to download a bloody episode yeah or let's
1: just, let's, uh, let's solve this problem let's solve the north dakota problem you know how many the fact that we have hundreds of more downloads from uh places in eastern europe yes than we do in north dakota is just it's this you know make, it's, it makes no sense yeah it doesn't it doesn't make any sense uh uh, so another thing, uh, um, you yeah, know, we had a bunch of weather here this week, right? We did. Ended up ended up canceling one of my uh, classes, which ended up being canceled by the university anyway. Right. Uh, well, we, I should say we had a bunch of weather. We didn't really... <laughs> We we, we, had we had some weather we had the threat of some weather and it we was had more weather confusion than weather, honestly. Yeah. But the forecasters actually did a really good job. They it, was did. A, it was a really tough forecast and yeah. all this. Uh
0: I had, but it's I, one of those situations where the temperature is bouncing between nineteen uh, between uh, thirty-one degrees Fahrenheit yeah. and thirty-three degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So it's it's like it's in this really terrible region to predict what's yeah. the consequence going to be really and and if it's and if it's just on that threshold it'll be ice it'll be a mess to drive in
1: right they cancel for ice even in the northeast so you know yeah. all these stereotypes whatever but so anyway i getting a discussion with some students about this uh one of them's a listener says do we get a are we going to get a shout out on the show for this so yeah, oh. y- yes listener jd you are nice Boom, done shout out um and and it's interesting like most of our downloads don't come from georgia hmm and so, therefore, they don't come from the University of Georgia, right. where we happen to teach. Yeah, um, just so, so happens we got We could expand our listener base just by appealing to <laughs> to people who who attend our law school. <laughs> 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 anyway, just saying. But but uh, uh, so yes, listener JD. And speaking of students, boy, I had a good conversation with my Supreme Court discussion group last night.
0: Really? What what made it so good? Uh, we discussed this Abercrombie and Fitch. Oral argument. Oh, this is the, the uh, a person who was denied a job and is concerned it was about the fact yeah, that but, she wears a headscarf.
1: Well, we we know that it was because she wears the headscarf and that they thought that she was uh, Muslim and that that was oh, the reason. But didn't they
0: realized the facts in the case were that clear. Oh, yeah. That,
1: but what was unclear? What they were trying to argue that they didn't learn that she was Muslim from her. That they just inferred that, and because they didn't learn it from her, they weren't required to provide an accommodation. Roughly, I mean, we can talk more about this. It was very. We also. um, So, what made the discussion with the students so great? uh, It was just really free ranging. We got to, you know, the case immediately became more complicated than Mm. it appeared to everybody. You know, it's one of those conversations where everybody kind of gets more out of it the more we talk about it. Even Mm -hmm. people who came in predisposed to favor the plaintiff or the defendant company, because you just read the brief and Abercrombie and & Fitch doesn't come off as exactly sympathetic right uh, even in the way they just describe their own branding and everything they, you know it's for many of us it's a little bit of a turn off but it's actually an interesting case mm-hmm. and uh we also read this case involving a visa denial and whether this is a you know a a foreign person who was denied a visa on grounds of terrorism oh um or being you know it's vaguely not that they were a terrorist but maybe they supported you know right. the whole point is we don't know exactly why they just ah. cited that section uh, they're married to a U.S. citizen. Ooh. The U.S. citizen sues, saying they have some kind of due process rights or right to marry based right for at least a reason. And for the of course, denial of their stocks. yes, and 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 the U.S. government is saying plenary power. We have we don't have to give mm-hmm. any reason, no process at all. Right, yeah, and so it's gonna, that's not going to fly. Well, it's an- it's it's interesting actually. These we, were argued we, this week, right? Yeah, at yeah, the, yeah, at yeah. The court yeah. This just on uh, Tuesday or when I don't remember which day exactly, but right. yes, just. You, know, you can't even get the audio yet, just the transcript,
0: which is another beef that I've got. Yeah, why don't we get audio the same day? Yeah, I mean, for is, crying out loud.
1: Cameras in the courtroom is one. Everyone always talks about that. I think you could go a long way towards. Just with the audio. Just live stream the audio.
0: We have the technology. They live stream. End of in the fact, day. They do transcripts by the end of the day. Right. Just give us the audio by the end of the day. So let
1: me just say, Chief Justice Roberts, um, <laughs> if, this, if, 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 if this is something which interests you, but I'll come do it. I'll set this up for the court. Totally. I can. I've coded things.
0: I can and do I this. will, I will come with you to go get sandwiches for you. Okay. Yeah. That, while you're doing it so that, that, that you can great. focus on it, uh, exclusively. Yeah. And, and maybe if, um, uh, if I am charged
1: with a felony by an overzealous prosecutor for something, which could happen according to our conversation with John Pfaff, Indeed. like it you know, it's going up, right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, and maybe they take pity on me and charge me with, you know, and, and give me community service. Maybe what I could do is set up a live audio stream in the Supreme
0: Court of the United States. Sure. That might discharge my obligations. The thing I'm gonna be doing is I'm gonna be writing letters to make sure that you're imprisoned in North Dakota. <laughs> so that we definitely will get downloads. Boy, a prison like a prison show, Johnny Cash style.
1: Nice. <laughs> All right, I got one Down more bit of feedback and then we're gonna get on with the show because we've got okay. lots of interesting stuff. Unless you've got something, Joe. I don't. Okay, so Shoot. one more bit of feedback. Uh we got an iTunes review and uh I don't it, we we've got more ratings, but we got a, a recent iTunes review which I hadn't seen. Until I went on there after the uh, after um, uh, listener Jack said, hey, I've been meaning to do it. So I said, oh, I wonder if we've gotten any more reviews. Guess what? We've got one more. Neat. We have one more. Um, uh, from uh, MSU Sparty 68. Okay. And I don't know whether that means they graduated in 68 or they were born so in 68.
0: MSU is Michigan State University? I think so.
1: I think because they're the Spartans, right? So I Spartan. think this is, you know. Okay. Um, uh, five stars. Awesome. Nice. Well done. Well done, Michigan State. <laughs> because uh, that's if, if the question is what should the star rating of oral argument be the answer is five stars yeah D- despite what's happened in the first few minutes of this show <laughs> <laughs> just wait till you get to the end of the sh- of this then you'll see all right so uh uh and then but here's what it is the the, su- the subject line because they wrote a written review is episode 49 power rankings
0: oh so episode 49 that was that was the one that was just you and me wasn't it i believe that's right in fact this is when i was calling from a, an undisclosed location yeah Oh, that's that's right. That's right. Wasn't that we, we talked about? Didn't we talk about marijuana a bit? We talked about talked about a number of. Yeah, things. we talked about it was. Um, I don't. I don't like remember marijuana legalization. Didn't we talk about that a little bit?
1: Uh, oh, no, it was about um, maybe we did, but it was more about the effect of, on on especially teenage brains. And oh, marijuana, that's right, that's and then right. we went Mar- into, marijuana use. Right. What what do we go into after that? I forget. I don't remember. Yeah, uh, it was important though. Okay. Well, <laughs> right, because by virtue of our having discussed it, um, right, it was I, it was a good show. I, I enjoyed it. But this person said episode 49 power rankings. Mm. Okay, which I think is a sports thing for so. like measuring how good people think teams are okay. based on the current standing, you power. know, not based just on wins and losses but like who's best right now, right? Mm. They rank us, Joe. Oh. Power rankings. So it's just there's this, a this one is not and there's a very long list. There's, there's only... a one and there's a two and that's uh, all because yeah, that's it, right? And one's Joe and one's Christian. Guess who's number 1?
0: Um I will say <laughs> having seen the review <laughs> my recollection is <laughs> that i am number one yeah one joe two christian
1: that i would that's like just to... at that moment though that's just that's no, a snapshot everybody knows that you're the reason people tune it's in so not they true. tolerate me I, I go trip. on too long. If only
0: they knew the truth about how this would not happen without you. If it were just, if it were just about me and what I could accomplish, this never would have happened, and it certainly wouldn't still be going. Well, on. Well,
1: but they, they, I'm not saying people don't value my technical skills with putting all this together and giving you a platform. But like, uh, <laughs> what was it? Was it what, who was it on Twitter a long time ago? Granny Pants. What was her name? Granny. <laughs> you remember this? I don't remember what it was. Less. Mo- what
0: did she say? Less chatter.
1: She Less- says, "Let the guests talk more." Yeah. She was. She thought we talked way too much, which yeah. is like you know. Let's just say she's probably not still a listener.
0: Probably not. We're big believers in. She moved to North Dakota,
1: right? I don't. Well, I don't know about you. I Bless think I heart. think you're in the same. Yeah. I mean, uh, I am a big believer in that. It takes a lot of nonsense to get somewhere good. Uh, totally. And we want our listeners to join us on that journey. Absolutely. <laughs> I, you, to get to good ideas, you gotta. Linus chug through a lot said, of stuff. "If you want
0: to have good ideas, you have to have a lot of ideas because most are crap." Right. Right.
1: And this kind of just we need this to get warmed up and and um I don't yes. know. Why not air it, right? It's I think it's yeah. Listeners roll around with us in the crap. <laughs> How would we have become the leading world authority on speed trap law had it not been for nonsense? Vital nonsense. Yeah. So uh so yeah, number one, Joe, number two, Christian. Uh so I would I would ask MSU Sparty sixty-eight um to because I would like to he- to hear the reasons why. Joe I mean, is so much better than I am at this I would because then do, we can
0: both get better. I would rather have lots of folks get on the Twitter and tweet their own power rankings and pick different episodes. Mm. Um, guests should always be power ranked number one. Yeah, I don't think they should even be – I don't want the guests to be ranked. Or they should be ranked number one. That's fine. You can do that. Well, that's your um, only choice,
1: yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, or email us because your, your more elaborate of thoughts. Of course. Yeah, rank every episode because, after all, there's, there's nothing in this world that can't be made better by making it into a winning
0: game. Totally.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com.
1: Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com with only minimal funny business. Correct. So you see the last episode for this. Uh, okay. No funny business. In other words, no dots, no dashes, no stars. No
0: dot, dots. Are but okay. it turns
1: out that, <laughs> it turns out the dots are actually okay. But left of the at we sign. We learned, yeah, yeah, left of the at sign. That's right. That's right. All right. Uh, anything else you got? Nope. Okay, let's get okay. on with it. Cool. This is the show okay. right now. We got John, we got John Faff. Um, awesome. Uh, uh, from Fordham. Great guy. Um, uh, we, we met each other, John, when I was uh, visiting assistant professor at FAF at, at, Faff, at Fordham. And you were, um, I think that was the fir- your first year at Fordham, too. You were um, your first year as an assistant professor. Yeah,
2: 2005.
1: 2005. Yeah, that was my yeah. very
2: first year. That was yeah. 10 years it, ago. It's hard to believe. Wow. And,
1: and you were thinking about um, crime and imprisonment. Even then, I remember you're talking about ways to look at data and and try to figure uh, try to figure this problem out. I, I don't know how much of your PhD dissertation had to do with um, imprisonment rates. Was was that a big part? of It It was. Yeah, my
2: dissertation looked at it looked at whether or not um, cr- how criminal sentencing guidelines worked. Uh, so the big I happened to write my dissertation right when the Supreme Court handed down its Blakely decision. Right, so all right. the states adopt these guidelines, and then in a rather peculiar line of cases, the Supreme Court basically tosses out two-thirds of the guidelines that states have. But they left sort of one-third left kind of viable. So if your guidelines said you must do this, no good. But if your guidelines just said we'd really like you to do this, but you don't actually have to, and if you don't do it, no one can complain about it, those are totally fine. Um,
1: so, Yeah, and, and for the listeners, this is um, a Supreme Court decision which um, uh, which – well, like you said, there were these sentencing guidelines that Justice Breyer actually was before he was a justice, right? Was involved in uh, helping to craft. Well, so, which, so
2: those are, those are the federal guidelines, right? And Breyer, he was yeah. on the on was it the First Circuit? He was also on the Sentencing Commission, which is a very right. peculiar institution that's got executive, legislative, and 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 judicial components to it. Um, but in in Blakely, actually, did not get to those guidelines. That was Booker. That came next. Oh, yeah. Although yeah, 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 yeah if right, you yeah. read Blakely very carefully, you realize the fact that the justices are not talking about state sensing at all. Right. So Blakely's all about right. Washington state sensing guidelines. In the process of this opinion, they invalidate about 14 or 15 other states' guidelines, and yet their entire opinion, the subtext of it all entirely is about the federal sensing guidelines. Uh, you now, my favorite example of that is that, um, two examples that Justice Scalia at one point says, you know, the reason why we have to get rid of these guidelines is because the way they're written, if you rob a bank, and then make an illegal left-hand turn. We can arrest you for the illegal left-hand turn and then sentence you without having to prove it for the bank robbery, which is exactly what right. the federal guidelines do. Right? In fact, at the time of this case, there was an 11th Circuit case in which a person was convicted of credit card fraud, but his sentence was aggravated for murder because mm. but they never found the body, so they couldn't charge with murder. But the maximum for credit card fraud is so huge, you could basically just build in the murder at sentencing.
1: And, and the whole wow. legal the whole legal issue here for for the listeners who don't know this area is is that uh, the question is what do, what does a jury have to find beyond a reasonable yeah, doubt this, or what does well, a judge This is
0: that a is like the apprentice stuff right. and right. ring right, right. and right. all and those so, issues. And right? so if
1: the if the crime is if the crime is that you have to prove uh, I don't know credit card fraud beyond a reason you have elements of that crime you got to prove them beyond a reasonable doubt to a fact finder usually a jury, right. and then. If you're guilty, then the judge, you know, the, the 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 statutes you usually say you can be sentenced anywhere between, say, three and 10 years. And, and these guidelines had more, you know, because people, you know, at, at various times thought that was way too much discretion for a judge. Uh, right. Maybe, John, you can get into the, some more color there, but said, here's some guidelines. So if you have a history, then you add on this much. And if you have, if it was done in this particular way, you add on this much. But all of those facts that go into locating you within the broad statutory range are, you know how do you have to prove those beyond a reasonable doubt right. or is it just the time, exactly. or it's just the judge and and at the time it was you didn't need to prove them beyond a reasonable doubt but then this is what this case was about right, John? right right
2: and the real problem the feds had is that you know you said no robberies three to ten that's what a state would look like but the feds credit card no credit card fraud might have a 50-year maximum on it right now if you just steal a credit card and do something minor, you're facing, like, you know, the guidelines to say no more than like three or four years. But that's a lot of the sort of build murder into the punishment is you can give someone 50 years for credit card fraud, but you only get that really high sentence if the judge found, like you said, by preponderance, something like, you know, you committed an aggravated violent felony in the process. So that was the federal regime. But in Blakely, what's amazing is Glee has the example. You know, if you make an illegal left-hand turn, we'll then sit, we'll convict you of that, but can, you know, sentence you for the bank robbery. But Washington state, the very state that, whose guidelines they were adjudicating, had a statutory provision that said no, nothing that counts as a separate crime can ever be used as an aggravating factor. <laughs> right. So the very example Scalia yeah. brought up was impossible in the state that when she was looking. It was very possible in the federal system, right? which is exactly what he was thinking about. And you see that running throughout the whole opinion, that they were, they were not thinking at all about about state sentencing at all their eyes are entirely fixed on, on the federal guidelines and that was, that was Booker um, but what Blakely did was it invalidated all these mandatory what were called presumptive guidelines that you know the judge could not impose a higher sentence unless he made this particular finding but other states had these things called voluntary guidelines still have them where the guidelines would say you really shouldn't impose a higher sentence in this unless you make this finding by preponderance but if you do okay Right, you, you know, it's, it's not no one can appeal if you impose a higher sentence, as long as it's within the, the, the statutory limits. No, even if you, we don't want you to do that, and those were are totally fine. Um, so, my, and,
1: and is, that's true. of The federal guidelines too, now, isn't it? And Aren't they used in that way?
2: Yeah. There's a. I won't bore your readers with like a six minute long pause. I should have <laughs> yeah. now before I answer that question. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. what makes what makes Booker such an incomprehensible opinion is that they have made the guidelines voluntary but subject to review. Um, right. And that is an internally incoherent explanation, right? Opinion. My, uh,
1: isn't it that, isn't it that like, you know, so the judge has discretion at sentencing. And so it's, I think it's always been the case that if, the judge abuses the discretion in the in, in sentence and then a court of appeals could overturn it. And now somehow the departure from the guidelines has to do with this discretion, right? I mean, that it's, you know, the fact that you departed from the guidelines, maybe, well, you tell me, is right. that, I mean, that that's, ruff-
2: roughly? That, that's what they apparently think they're saying, right? And what's remarkable about Booker is that the first half of the opinion says, because the federal guidelines require judges to make fact finding, they are now invalid. And five justices sign to that. The second half says we're now making them voluntary. Five justices sign on to that, but only, they only have one justice in common, and that's Ginsburg, who doesn't explain herself. Um, so you have these two mutually exclusive ideas, and I'll show why they're, they're completely exclusive, um, and only one justice can actually sort of square the circle, and that justice doesn't explain how you can make a circle square. Um, <laughs> so the problem I have with Booker, is so they say you've got these voluntary guidelines. So, that, so that Blakely says that any fact, that must be found to impose a higher sentence, that fact has to be found by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. It doesn't matter if it's the difference between aggravated assault and simple assault or if it's just where in the guidelines you're going to sentence someone for assault. Right? But if, if you can't impose a higher sentence, then it must be found without it. It must be found by a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Right? So the way these guidelines used to work is, you know, like you say, you know, the, the sentence for, for kidnapping was you know, 5 to 15 years. But the guidelines say you can only give a sentence of eight to nine years unless you find like he used a gun or is particularly violent or this or that or that and if you find one and, and
1: didn't this didn't this often come up in drug amounts for uh drug in, crimes sure
2: yeah exactly in drug cases it'd be sort of how much drugs you have for for violent crimes it's sort of just how violent was it right for property crimes right. it cut off is oftentimes the amount right you know the, if you look at like the federal theft provisions like it's like 12 or 14 different degrees of you know, within theft is like plus two points for if it's under 1,000, plus, you know, four points if it's between 1,000 and 5,000 and, and, and so on. Um, and so, but the way the guidelines would say is that you know, the judge could not make, impose the sentence above, say, nine years, even though the statutory maximum is 15, unless he made these additional findings. Um, and if he's imposed like a 12 year sentence and didn't have the facts to back it up, the appellate, court would, the appellate court would reverse it for not being, you know, sufficiently justifiable. Um, and so what Blakely said is that you, if, you, if you have to make this finding, That finding must be made by a jury beyond reasonable doubt. And so what the the Booker Court says is that, okay, that holds true. The federal guidelines are invalid because they require this judicial fact finding. Judicial fact finding is bad. So we're going to make them voluntary, subject to sort of this review. But where that breaks down is just think about a case in which a judge has a case of credit card fraud. Credit card fraud carries a sentence of 50 years as a maximum. All this guy did was steal someone's credit card and use it at Walmart. Uh, and the judge gives him 45 years. And the appellate court swoops in and says, no, 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 that's unreasonable. Doesn't say why, right? Just says, this is and there's, there's this vague sense. Yeah, if they're voluntary, you're not required to follow them. They encourage you to only sentence them for like five years for this. You give them 45 within the statutory maximum. But, you know, it's just, it's just ick, unreasonable. No. All right. And now a case comes along and you've got the credit card fraud and the guy's dead and no one can find the body of the person so they don't charge the with murder. But you can take a credit card fraud and the judge gives them 45 years. And the appellate court says that's fine. Right? In effect, what the appellate court has now said is there is some fact. They're not nailing down exactly what it is. Right? But when you didn't have the body, you couldn't do 45 years. When you do have the dead person, you can do 45 years. Clearly you need some fact to give a sentence 45-year sentence. So now there is... Even the,
1: as a matter, as law, a matter of law, as a matter of court, law, yeah. you
2: need something to get into this 45 year range. And by definition of what Booker itself says earlier, right, that requires a jury beyond a reasonable doubt to find that fact, even though the appellate court hasn't really told you exactly what that set of facts are. Right. You know, you know, a dead person's enough. Right. But how about if he held the person up with a shotgun to his credit card? Is, is that enough? We don't know. But every time the court says yes for this and no for that, they're effectively creating these rules that by definition. The jury has to find. So if, if they're either they have to be wholly voluntary or if they're subject to this review, each time the court makes a finding, they become less voluntary. But it's just it's right. internally impossible to to reconcile the opinion.
1: So what would you do? Personally, if you could ch-
2: yeah. I, I feel like we should toss out the voluntary subject to reasonableness review. I think reasonableness review should just disappear. Um, and in fact, three states tried to follow Booker as well. and They did, they did three states whose guidelines were, in, were declared unconstitutional. They said, okay, we're going to do the exact same thing the feds did in Booker. We're going to make our guidelines voluntary subject to some sort of reasonableness review. And in all three states, exactly what the exact same thing has happened is just become procedural review, right? As long as the judge actually explains himself, the appellate courts will never evaluate the merits of that reasoning, right? So if I just say I'm giving 50 years, period, it's getting coming back to me. If I say I'm giving 50 years because, and I don't say something that's completely impermissible, you know, like because of his race or because of something like that, then the appellate courts aren't going to touch it. Um, So this is purely like as long as you jump through the procedural hoop of explaining yourself, you're fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole problem that motivates one to to see Booker favorably is a concern. Well, I mean, I guess unfavorably (laughs) now I'm like wrapped around a pole here. But uh, like one 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 thing that motivates the idea of guidelines to begin with is a concern about judicial discretion. Right. And it's just the 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 bad thing that will befall a criminal defendant. Uh, jail time or what have you seems to be, you know, highly variable depending on what's in the mind of a particular judge. And so we try to constrain that discretion. Uh, but the more you constrain it, um, uh, the more it looks like, um, you know, you're basically defining different kinds of crimes. Um, and, and so, like you say, I mean, there is this 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 problem of uh, of inconsistent um, desires here because the one thing that we could do to to fix this defining statutorily very different crimes that fit narrower situations we don't seem to be doing right um would you favor that i mean it in in other words if you think there's a problem with judges considering too many factors um uh you know what i mean i mean the judges in their heads are considering too many factors that have too much influence and and ultimately you know the, the the criminal defendant probably cares more about whether he or she is getting 50 years or 10 years than about exactly what the label is right, of the conviction, right? Well, right? Think, then you go ahead. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I think one thing is, you know, you, you said that you no know, guidelines are designed to sort of protect defendants. That's not always the case, right? Oftentimes guidelines are designed to guarantee that judges aren't too lenient. You know, the, the, the co-sponsors of the federal guidelines were Ted Kennedy and strong Thurmond. right? They came at this from very, <laughs> very different perspectives. Um, you know, Kennedy saw Southern judges being racially discriminatory, and Strong Thurman saw all these carpetbagger judges being too soft on crime, right? right. Um, and so you get that and that tension exists. The fact that the guidelines were started, initially started being written under Carter, but were passed under Reagan, you can guess which of those I- ideas is more ascendant when the guidelines hit their final form. Um, but I think the other thing to be concerned about when you have too many different degrees of offenses, right, instead of just aggravated assault and giving judges lots of discretion, you have... This assault, that assault, this assault, that assault, this assault, each with different little sentences attached to them, is that transfers a huge amount of power to the prosecutor.
1: Well, that's exactly where I wanted so to go with this because this no, gets us into your current work, right? Because yeah.
2: right? there's almost no yeah. prosecutors are subject to almost no oversight at all right? in, 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 From a constitutional perspective, right? That they have almost unfettered charging discretion. Right. And so, so we have. So can
0: we sl- can we slow down and dial this back a bit? Yeah. So
2: so go go walk
0: me through why it is that define. I think I heard you say defining crimes in a lot more detail, um, so that you would have a suite of you know eighteen different statutorily defined versions of an assault concept. Right. right. Why having eighteen different statutes? Why that transfers power to prosecutors? Sure.
2: So the idea would be so you have. Aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a gun, aggravated assault in, w- in which a gun is discharged, aggravated assault with a knife and all these different kinds of offenses. All right? If we thought that DAs had no option but to charge exactly what had happened, then that might not give them any power. But the fact is, is that when you attack someone with a gun, the DA might still discharge you with aggravated assault without a gun or he'll choose to to charge with aggravated assault with a gun, right? He can sort of choose which of these charges he wants to charge you with. Um, And so that gives him tremendous power to decide, you know, do I charge you with the one that has the mandatory minimum? Do I charge you with the one that doesn't? Do I charge you with the one that carries a two to three-year sentence, or do I charge you with the one that carries a five to six-year sentence? And, you know, by sort of his his almost completely unreviewable, in many ways, very non-transparent charging decision can have a huge bearing on on what the final sentence imposed is.
0: So how would that differ from the case where it, the only thing in the statute book is simply assault, uh, and it's the most general de- definition of the, of the crime, and then
2: the sentencing range is very broad, that, right? right? You know, s- six months to 60 years. Right, and that puts all the hands in the power of the judge, right? Because now, the, now for every assault, the DA has no choice but to charge that person with assault, and if, as long as he convicts on the basic elements of assault... All the discretion then gets transferred to the judge to figure out where between six months and 60 years you want to impose the sentence.
1: Yeah, and factoring out, of course, um, factoring out uh, the political economy of plea bargaining and how much, say, the prosecutor's uh, um, suggested range carries, right? I mean, that's right. a little bit of a complicated well, factor. Because those but, are
0: two different things, and the second one in particular, with it, when you've got... You know, the trial judge, I would think, is going to be relying heavily on a sentence recommendation made by the prosecutor at the sentencing stage. Well, right? that's an empirical question, right? I mean, do we know the answer but to that, John? Isn't that, that what John? current practice is, that that well, prosecutors prepare these sentencing recommendation reports? They that, do,
1: but I'm saying it's an empirical question, the degree to which the um, sentences reflect what's in those reports. Ah. Right? I mean, I I would guess that you're right, that so, so uh, what I hear John saying is not that a system of very lumpy charges, potential charges, gives no power to the prosecutors, right? I mean, they still, you know, even if all they can charge is assault, there's just assault, and then there's um, some misdemeanor, right? But it's a much and more so
2: informal th- power in that sense, right? In that it comes down to right. sort of the courtroom culture and you know, sort of the nature of the collaboration between the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the judge, unlike a very strict guideline system in which the DA has almost all the power. So I, I mean, I once heard a, 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 a retired district attorney from a major urban city in a guideline state say the fact that he basically trained his ADAs to get the exact sentence down to almost the month that they wanted from the judge. Right. That by you no, know, with this defendant, they thought this defendant deserved 38 months. So they charged with this assault, that assault and this weapons charge. And that would force a judge to send it like a four month range. Right. But they chose this other set of charges then they could get this guy 50 months or 22 months. And sort of based on the, the DA sense of what the just outcome was, and I, I do believe, you know, DAs um, are oftentimes trying to do sort of what they view as just. Now, their view of justice and public defenders view of justice might be very different um, based on sort of underlying ideology. But I do believe most of DAs, that is what's motivating them. But it gave them huge ability to sort of basically force a judge to nothing more but enact their policy choice.
1: And you can see this in lots of other areas. I mean, parents can see this with kids, but also, um, you know, teachers, if you if you have the power to give A, B, C, D or F, right, that's going to, the students are going to approach that class differently than a pass fail class. Right. Um, And so your ability to kind of shape behavior. Uh, differs between the two scenarios in rather obvious ways, right? right. Uh, Although I think I a
2: more interesting comparison or more sort of direct comparison would be how do students act towards professors in curved classes versus uncurved classes, right? Because the curve is kind of like the guidelines, right? I can give exactly right. XAs in this class as opposed to the uncurved class where I can kind of decide, like, do I really want to give this guy an A or not? Like, no. And maybe in the uncurved classes, you know, students are a bit more... I don't know, sycophantic or something, right? Because they know I have more control over things, where in a curved class maybe, you know. You yeah.
1: Well that's exactly it, John, right? I mean the curved class is like the guide a guideline right. state, right? An uncurved class is is like um a state that has a lot of statutorily defined levels of assault. And a pass fail class is like the state which just has the assault charge, right? And you're just gonna get different outcomes and behaviors in those three Things, right? What you look quizzical, Joe? What'd I do wrong?
0: Well, I've been, uh, you didn't say something wrong. It's, there's another variable here. Which if the is answer is most I do classes, anything wrong,
1: the, the, the answer is yes,
0: right? <laughs> but, but most, most curved classes are, are also exam classes, and most law schools now grade exams anonymously. So there's another – there's an important variable here, which is you usually don't know to, to, precisely to whom you're giving the grade that's right. curved. That matters. That makes a difference, right? Be, it, it, in essence, it's a system designed to take the person's identity out of the process. Whereas yeah, the sentencing a, measures are about putting the person in the process. Filling
1: out their identity.
0: Correct. Yeah, like, yeah, let's yeah. learn more about them. Let's learn more about their circumstances. What are their past offenses, if any? What are their past circumstances? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, say, say of, yes and no to that. It's a bad uh, analogy, in other words. Right.
2: I, I think yeah. grading is, I think, more I think about the more I think grading is going to be a tricky analogy. But, you know, in terms of trying to flesh out the person, it's, it's both doing more of that and less of that, right? In that it's saying these factors matter. Right. These are the kind of aggravating and mitigating factors we think should be hmm. taken into account. At the same but time, these others but don't. These other ones you can't. Right? So before, right. a judge could look at sort of any factor he wanted to. And, and of course, one of the concerns we have is that amongst the factors they took into account were things like you know, race. Right? That they're just going to punish blacks and black men and young black men in particular differently than, than older, whiter, more female defendants.
1: Uh, or they just sub- subconsciously felt less Mercy. Right, right. I'm, I'm not saying less it's. Explicit, identification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, no, yeah, implicit racial
2: yeah. bias is a, is a, is a beast. Right. Um, but that, yeah. regardless, that the more discretion they had, the more either explicit or implicit biases would, would creep in. Um, so part of it's about getting a bigger picture, part of it's about starting a, a narrower picture. Um, but no matter what that picture is, the more narrowly defined these guidelines are. Um, the more power transfers to the DA, the more broad they are, the more either tra- more discretionary transfers the judge, to, you know, if he wishes to ignore what the DA is doing, you no know, subject again to Other sort of informal constraints that they might face from a from you know a, you know, a sort of a bureaucratic perspective. Um,
1: well, let's let's do you mind if we move to the um, to the current work yeah, and, and talk about the power of DAs? I mean, so so, John, you've got uh, and you know we're going to talk about some of your academic papers and then of course you wrote this thing for slate that's gotten a lot of attention about you know, the basic question is why do we imprison so many people and why why the dramatic spike in uh, in the proportion of people in prison from basically the 1970s until now you know why is that and and you approach that as 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 a good empiricist with a very open mind right, right. and 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 have come out with you know a lot of the things that people just accept uh, like uh, the war on drugs, um, um, uh, um, kind of uh, tough on crime, longer sentences. A lot of these things you say actually don't matter. And you've got this hypothesis, we'll call it. Although maybe we can get into later, you know, um, the degree to which empiricism is about hypothesis testing, which I found super interesting in your other piece. But, um uh, that it has to do with prosecutorial behavior likely has to do with that, or at least that the evidence is telling us that. And, and, and in doing this, you, you provoked the, um, a group of Texas prosecutors to, (laughs) on Twitter to say that they should read your work if they're interested. If if, if, people should read your work who are interested in becoming dumber. Yes. Is that right? Is that what they said on Twitter? They said what? No, they, they slammed him. They absolutely slammed him. They
2: subtweeted me too. didn't even, didn't even call me out by name. Um, but, but I believe what the uh, the was it was the Texas Association of 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 county and of district and like county prosecutors um, said that so the, the subtitle to the Slate piece was a provocative new theory on prison growth, and they said if by provocative you mean idiotic, then we agree. And then their <laughs> and then their next tweet was um, it's amazing how like. Internet's supposed to make us smarter, but all it seemed to do is make us dumber, was their very next oh tweet my. that came out. Um, although, to their credit, when I, and this sounds like I'm back in high school, like, oh my God, you won't believe who tweeted at me. But uh, when I tweeted <laughs> back, like, you no, know, doth protest too much, they did like retweet that out again. So they at least had a sense of humor about calling, calling it out. And then, of course, you and uh, my fr- you and Julian Mortensen started posting things like, you know, the Wikipedia link to statistics to help them out to figure out. Right. which i greatly appreciate it
1: um well i just i just asked them straight up i mean do, do you have like do you have an argument here or is this just because that's just total ad hominem right and and so do you have is there a reason that, that did they have a reason for saying that you're wrong i mean because it would be interesting to know what those people think about whether there's been a change in the behavior of prosecutors right uh in the face of declining uh constant arrest rates and declining crime etc cetera. Yeah. Do they have anything or or not, or, or I mean, not? I, and then I, and then I, of course and then I did I did I did tweet them uh, also or maybe I didn't tweet it alongside. I don't remember if I subtweeted them or not about this, but I think I did post the link to the Carl uh, William. No, well, you, you you, you not bridge. subtweet
2: you sent that that rate to them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: which was maybe a little bit mean. On the other hand, um, I don't feel too bad about it. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So I, it, where it's, where this stands empirically, turns to theory. Or not is an interesting question. But so the, the basic observation that I've made is, if you're trying to understand how, I guess maybe the easier place to start was sort of start at the beginning, which is so prison growth in the U.S. Right. So you know, right now we are the world's largest imprisoner. Right. We have about five percent of the world's population. We have about twenty five percent of the world's prisoners. Um, you know, we have, I guess the Seychelles technically has a higher incarceration rate than we do, um, but like bears of any other major country, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, you know, the countries that come close to us are places like Russia and Cuba, um, and Belarus, right? They're not exactly, you know, paragons of, of, you know, open democracy and, and the sort of the, the, the you know, the NATO kind of countries that we think of as our peers, like, you know, Canada and England and Germany, they're all down around, we're at 750 per 100,000. They're at around 200 to 100 per 100,000. France or Germany is at around 80 per 100,000. Right. So we're. And,
1: and just can I, if I can give. So
2: we're,
1: we're getting closer to a, um, a one in a thousand imprisonment rate. Right. Uh, um, I have that right. Right. So we have seven no, no, no. hundred it, per
2: 100,000. We're basically at a one in 100 adults are in prison right now.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but we had been. Um, and then this is uh, what fold increases this because we had been closer to that one in a thousand right, did, or one so in 10,000. We, we right? were
2: at around we along with every other country that we sort of think of as like a, a pure country right around a one right incarceration of 100 per 100,000 in the 19, yeah. early 1970s and had been at that rate pretty much since the 1920s. when We first had data through the 1970s. You know, there was a spike. In, you know, in incarceration during Prohibition, there was a drop in incarceration during World War II because we took all the violent young men and put them somewhere else. Um, But then, you know, it kind of stabilized and through the 1970s, it hovered at around 100 per 100,000. And then in the 70s, it started going up and just went up without stopping, uh, basically until 2000. In 2000, it kind of flattens out a bit. And then it doesn't drop for the first time until 2010.
1: Yeah, We're going to link up your Georgia state paper, maybe other papers that we talk about in our show notes, but uh, figure one has this dramatic graph. Uh, This is the U.S. incarceration rate from 1922 to 2008. And to say that it increases dramatically is, I mean, it looks like a cliff, right, Mm -hmm. from uh, 19 late nineteen seventies yeah. uh, until two thousand Now interestingly this graph cuts off at five hundred per hundred thousand. Is that so, am I reading the axes no, wrong or no, what's no. going on? So
2: there? there are two different ways to look at an incarceration rate. There's people in prison and there's people in prison and jails. Um, and so the the basic breakdown is that Prison, if you're convicted of a felony, which is a, should be a sentence of at least a year and a day or more, you go to prison. If you're convicted of a misdemeanor or any other crime that carries a sentence of less than a year um, or you're awaiting trial, you go to jail. Um, it's not a trivial distinction. Prisons are paid for by the state. Jails are paid for by the county. That can be a very important distinction. Um, but when doing international comparisons, you have to use the combined prison jail number because not every country has this distinction. Um, so, to have a common frame of reference, you use the incarceration rate of prisons and jails, and that comes to about 700 per 100,000. Prisons alone is around, I think now it's like around 500 or so per 100,000. What? what is there a war going on behind you, John? Sorry, the, the, not a war, but the <laughs> the apartment next to ours has decided to start renovating their kitchen. Um, oh, great. And I was hoping that it actually there was a nice little lull there. They hadn't been working on it for a while, but now they seem to be. And of course, they're in the demo phase right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that yeah,
1: no, no, no problem is just, there was some hammering, I think, or something right. like that. But, uh, but th- so that's, uh, so, so, but your basic project here is to try to explain, uh, is to, is to explain again with an open mind, why this, uh, reverse cliff, why this dramatic increase, this explosive increase. And, and you, you just want to tell us like what some of the the common, um, um uh, common wisdom? What am I thinking? Of? The received right. wisdom or the or conventional the, wisdom? Yeah,
0: common underst- yeah, conventional. <laughs> and and <laughs> what's the and what's the um the crisp evidence that that those things are wrong? Because I think you've got some really great, very crisp, easy to state facts that just fly right in the face of those conventional wisdom explanations.
2: So why don't you just give us a one-two on each. Sure. So I mean, obviously the the explanation you always hear. It cracks my wife up. So you go to a party and I tell someone I've been studying you know, that's what I do. I'm a law professor. Where are you studying? I've been trying to understand prison growth for the past 10 years. And they look and they like, oh, isn't it just the war on drugs? Like I hadn't heard of this before and I need to take notes. And, oh my God. Wait, have we been fighting drugs? Because I mean, I've got a whole backpack full of LSD and Coke on me. Like I did not know this was illegal. And, you know, my wife finds it hilarious. Like, right, how you you didn't, you, you tell them I've been studying this for a decade. How do they not realize you probably thought about the war on drugs? Right. Um, but obviously that's the, the biggest explanation, right? It's just the war on drugs. We're locking up all these drug offenders for really drug offenders. That's part of it. And then and separate parts for long periods of time. Um, and that's why our prison populations are so large. Um, the catch is, is that in 1990, we had the most, the, the largest, the, the time was where the share of prisoners who were in prison on drug charges was its largest was 1990. And that was 22% of all state prisoners and about 27% of all US prisoners all told. Um, and one, one important distinction is that there's, no, there's a state system and there's a federal system. And the federal prison system gets a lot of attention. But the feds only make right. up about 10% of the U.S. prison population, right? 90% of wow. all prisoners are in state prisons. Um, right. And the feds look nothing like the states, right? So the war on drugs does explain federal prison growth, right? Half of all federal inmates are in prison on drug charges. Um, but that's because the feds can't really touch anything else, right? Drugs, guns, white collar crime. And that's basically it, right? You know, for me, the, the best example of just how narrow federal jurisdiction is, is uh, when the, the Alfred Murrah bombing, right? The Oklahoma City bombing, you know, 168 people were killed when a federal building was was destroyed. Many of them, a lot of them were federal employees, right? But only eight of those cases were actually federal criminal murder cases, right? The other 160 cases, even though they are federal employees, many of them were federal employees, were state cases because those employees weren't sufficiently federal or covered, they weren't high enough to count um, as their covered federal employees. Right? Um, So no federal jurisdiction is very narrow. It can get drugs, it can get guns, it can get white collar crime because you use telephone wires to 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 usually do that.
1: A lot of us think there are too many federal crimes. Period, which is a a different conversation. But your point is, even if you just released everybody from federal prison, there would still be this cliff. Well, no, I'm saying even if
2: you release everyone in right. So first of all, if you release everyone from federal prison, you'd still see this cliff because you've got 1.6 million people in prison, and only about 200,000 of them are federal prisoners. Right. So you still have one point four million people in prison without the federal system. Right. So to understand what's going on, I basically focus just on the states and the state level, at least the direct incarceration of people on drug charges can't explain it. Because in 1990, when we had the largest percent of prisoners serving time for drug charges, they made up about 22 percent of all state prisoners. And since 1990, 1991, that has dropped steadily to 17 percent. So 17% of all prisoners in state prisons are in prison on a drug charge. Now, how many people are in prison for murder because they murdered someone in a drug deal gone bad? How many people are in prison because they stole something to feed their addiction because they're not getting treatment because you treat drugs like a problem? Those are much harder to detect, right? So when I say it's not the war on drugs, I do want to be careful to say what I'm talking about is the decision to incarcerate people for drug offenses, right? You could think of the war on drugs more broadly as a staunch refusal to treat drugs like a public health problem, right? it as a criminal problem. Therefore we don't provide the schizophrenics and the homeless with, with mental health treatment. And therefore they commit violent and other property crimes, for which they go to prison in that sense the war on drugs can matter more than, than I give it credit for. Right. But like if, other
1: spinoff cr- crimes like uh, alcohol and the Al Capone era.
2: Right? right. I
1: mean,
2: there's, yeah. A few people went to prison for, you know, Alcohol charges, but the reason why you're going to prison for murder was entirely because of the prohibitionary laws.
0: Right, right. right, right. Um, now
2: that's, all right so that,
0: that's one. So what about runaway mandatory minimums?
2: Right. So I would think of it less as mandatory minimums, as I'll come to you in a second. Those are a little trickier to conceptualize, but more is it just longer sentences, right? We have all these okay. massively long sentences. People just are rotting away in prison for years, and that's why our prison population is so large. And you know, intuitively, that makes sense, right? It's not it's completely true that legislators have been passing tougher and tougher and tougher sentencing laws all the time. Um, but DAs don't appear to actually use them. Right. So you actually look at time served, you know, the median time to release, you know, of a prisoner admitted is usually around two to three years. Um, and for, at least in the States, we have good data for, which are admittedly disproportionately Northern and disproportionately blue, right. You know, 70%, no, 75% 75% are out within about five years, six years, and you know, usually you know, 90% some are out within like 10 or 12 years. Right? So you, you don't really have that many people serving these really, really long sentences. I think the best example I, I can think of of that is you know, New York State has, has had these notoriously harsh drug laws. So the Rockefeller drug laws, considered some of the toughest drug sentencing laws in the country. Um, in 2000, long before any reforms took place, um, New York State admitted 12,700 people on drug charges. In, two, in the year 2000. Of those 12,700, half were released within a year. 75% were out within four years. And by 2012, of those 12,700 people sentenced under some of the toughest drug laws in the country, 23 of them were still in prison. Right, so that's 23 out of, 12, 000, of almost 13,000 served 12 years or more. Uh, for. Well, maybe,
1: maybe, th- maybe that last bit takes care of what I was going to ask about. Because you know, the focus on the, uh, on the relatively unchanged median rate for me would not be enough because of course, you know, kind of like a, um, you use the leaky bathtub example elsewhere, but, um, uh, but you know, so if if you increase the flow into, suppose you've got a, a bathtub with a leak in it and you've got the flow rate of water, which is just enough to keep it at a fixed level despite the leak, you know, um, if, if you increase that flow just a little bit, maybe that explains the cliff. And so may, maybe if only 10% of prisoners are getting longer rates, you know, they're all staying in, right? So, I, so even though the, so you, you, the median's not enough. You'd want to look at the distribution and see if like the, t- one of the tails of that, the tail of that distribution, or even like the front tail, maybe there are people at the, who have the lowest sentences who are getting just slightly longer sentences. I mean, so I'd want to see that full distribution. But then maybe what you just said takes care of it, that the number, you know, uh, at the tails is actually not changing as much.
2: Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, I don't no, know. It makes total yeah. sense. And I, I do, I mean, in terms of, I, I, there's no good short, pithy answer for that question. I do have another paper where I try to really dig at how important are these sort of, this, this sort of core of very long-serving inmates. How much influence do they have? And I, my results suggest with very, very large pluses or minuses. So, you know, take this with some grain of salt. But- now, the estimate is there's probably about 300 and some thousand very long-serving inmates in state prison. Now, our entire U.S. prison population in 1975 was about 300,000 people, right? So our core of hard, durable I refer to as are durable offenders, right? Those are going to be there for a very long time. That durable core is not equal. probably is about on the order of magnitude of our total prison population 40 years ago, right? So I don't want to understate that core. Yeah, right. Um, but it's not the driving force. Um, And, you know, there's actually a a recent Wall Street Journal article that was summarizing some research that's trying to understand, you know, why is the U.S. prison population turning gray? So the U.S. prison population is getting older and older. The median age of prisoners has gone up. And, of course, the obvious explanation for that is, well, that's because everyone's just serving longer sentences, right? They're spending more time in prison. That's why they're getting older. Um, and this paper is coming out soon, that uses a different data set than I do, right? So looking, obviously looking at the same U.S. prison population, but looking at it with a completely different data set that looks at people in a different way. So it's kind of a nice form of outside confirmation. that it's not that people are serving longer time in prison. It's that there's this cohort of older offenders who simply haven't stopped offending. You know, we generally think that people sort of age in and out of crime, right? That, you know, when you hit your early teens, you become more criminal. You sort of hit your you're most likely to at your most violent in like your late teens, early 20s. And when you're in your 30s, you generally start phasing your way out of crime. It's, no, it's a gross oversimplification, but a fair sort of stereotype of how we think people act. But there is this core that's now in their 40s and 50s, and they're just not stopping. In um, the thoughts back, just, right. they, they seem to exhibit higher levels of drug abuse. Right? So you have this core of sort of drug-addicted older people who are still offending, but again, it suggests it's not longer sentences. The, the different paper looking at different questions using different data finds the same thing I do, that you know, it really just doesn't seem to be length. It seems to be sort of people just being admitted. Um,
1: yeah. Which is one of the I wanted
2: to punt on mandatory minimums for a second, because mandatory minimums are tricky, right? Because if the mandatory minimum says you would have gotten five years, now you get six years, those strike me as not being so important. But the ones where they say you would have gotten probation, but now you go to prison, right? The ones that determine the in-out decision, those mandatory minimums actually might matter quite a lot, right? Because my sense is that what drives prison growth is admissions, right? Um,
1: well, let's, if you look at, um, and, and for the readers who... who- want to click on the link and download your paper which i suggest you've got a figure in there figure three which has one curve which is and they're both kind of they're not exactly linear and the, the extent to which they're not linear explains a lot but they yeah, they're just rising lines and the, the blue line is the admission um rate uh or the number of admissions and the the red line is the number of releases and the and the admission line uh for the important period is above the release line. In other words, we're admitting more people to prison than we're than we're releasing, which is like the bathtub, which is filling up faster than it's than it's draining. Uh, and and you got this. And, and I want you to talk about. You know, I want to make sure we leave enough time for your core theory, which is super interesting too. So let's not uh, don't don't delay on this too much if if it's not uh, interesting. Um, but also, you know, maybe maybe we could talk about lead a little bit. Um, but um, uh, with the with with this particular figure, though, there's this kink in the, uh, in the admissions line, right about like 1988 to 1990, where it just kind of the, it's like we turned on the faucet a lot stronger and then, and then we kind of dialed it back a little bit. But the point is that all that extra water was coming in, all, all the extra emissions were coming in. Is there something special about that little, you know what I'm talking about? The little kink in the data, right? From yeah. 1980 to 90. Is there something special there where the d- derivative just kind of shoots up all of a sudden?
2: Yeah. I think what you see there probably is crack. Um, right, so that's right around. It's between, you no, know, that's between eighty-five and ninety. Right, you no, know, so that's what. You know, it's, yeah. So crack hits the scene. Around, maybe it's sort of the tail in the crack, right? So crack hits the scene around eighty-four, right, and then runs until around ninety-one. Right. So if you look at, if you look at sort of crime in the United States, the way it kind of works is that you know from nineteen sixty to nineteen eighty, violent crime goes up, property crime goes up. There's actually a massive boom in crime between sixty and eighty. Um, so the fact that prison growth starts in the late seventies is actually kind of peculiar. Because we actually, by 75, we were were 15 years into a pretty substantial crime boom. Um, Then in 80, it actually stops. Violent crime goes flat, property crime goes down for about four years. And then in 84, both of them turn on a dime and and spike back up um, and peak in 1991. Um, And by the time it gets 1991, between 60 and 91, violent crime rises by about 400%. um, And property crime rises by about 200%, but from a baseline 10 times as high. So the percent change couldn't have been the same in scope. Um, so there's this huge boom in crime, but you sort of have this boom in 84 to 91. That's kind of tied to crack. Um, right. It's not so much tied to violence committed by crack users. It's sort of violence tied to the crack market. Um, right. It's not, it's not the addicts who are causing the crime. It's the dealers. Um, and what happens in 91, among other things, it doesn't appear to be the fact that crack goes away. Um, there's a paper by Steve Levitt and a couple other economists, uh, that try to sort of create sort of an index of crack use, right? It's very hard to measure drug use, right? Cause you know, you, even we have all these surveys, the surveys can't reach the most addicted or right? how, do you know, exactly? No, we use ER overdosing data, but perhaps we will go to ER those who are less hardcore users because hardcore users know how to not overdose. Right. So we try right. to measure all of our estimates are all biased in all the wrong directions. Um, But their sort of efforts to compile sort of a multifaceted index suggests that crack consumption in 2000 was like 70% of what it was in 1991, right? But violent crime had dropped precipitously. And so the thought is not the fact that crack markets had gone away, they had just become stable, right? Um, But between-
1: Like like overcoming the shock of this relatively cheap, highly addictive drug suddenly taking over, like that was an instability in- A black market which is kind of prone to violence but which becomes less violent over time
2: right i think the idea being the fact that they now understood like this is my corner that's your corner right we can both make a lot of money and not get ourselves killed if we just sort of oh that's interesting yeah sort of things just got a bit more stable um but not necessarily any less prevalent um, and so I think what you see in that spike there is probably just sort of the tail end of, of, the, of, the, of the push against crack and probably some new laws that got passed, probably mandatory minimums, could be some mandatory minimums that, that changed the in-out decision. Right? There are people who might not have gone to prison at all. Now we'll go to prison. You sort of see this bump, bump in admissions. Um, but my guess is that that's definitely part of it.
1: But that bump then and then but then after the bump, the slope goes back to what it was, but it doesn't decrease. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it's it's like the, the rate. Uh, the rate of increase is what it, you know, there's this pure, There's this kink where all of a sudden the the rate of change of admissions is higher than it used to be. But then instead of admissions going back to what they would have been without that bump, they continue along the old trajectory. Right. Well, keep in you mind know, so, that
2: what you're looking at is not admissions rate, but just raw admissions. Yeah,
1: right, right. But, but, but if there was this like unusual crime, you know, wave, what you, what I would expect is that after that, resolves that the number of admissions would continue on the trend line before that wave, right? right? So that's, but instead so that's, what happens it, is it returns to the old derivative rather than the old absolute line.
2: Right. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on, right? So my work focuses on, so so from, from 75 to 91 prison populations grow, but crime grows, right? So that's not so surprising. Now, the growth in crime can't explain all the growth in prisons, but it's not surprising these two things move together. But 91 on becomes a much trickier story because crime drops pretty steadily, but prison populations keep going steadily upwards. Right? So what's pushing them up even as the number of, of, of offenders starts going down? Um, and one thing I would point out, I think it's lost a lot in the discussion of the great, sort of this, the great crime decline from 1991 to today, is that as safe as we are today, and while <clears throat> certain American cities like New York are probably safer than they've ever been, at the national level, our violent crime rate is still twice as high as it was in 1960. Right? So while crime is no longer a, a big issue uh, in politics right now, right. It, it didn't come up in the past presidential election. It, has, it doesn't even come up in this, this election. So at least not being punitive. Right. You know, I'm concerned that if crime starts going back up. The boomers are still likely to be very afraid of crime. Right. It's still, the country's still twice as violent as it was when my parents were in college. Right? And that's, that's a huge pool of people who are prone to be scared of, of, of crime coming back. But from a prison point of view, the question is, how do our prison populations keep rising even as crime is dropping? Um, and that's what I've been focusing on you know, for, for years now. And, and you know, your first thought might be, OK, you know, we have all these new police tactics. We have fewer crimes, but we're actually arresting more people. Right? We're saying more, a larger fraction of criminals are being put into the system. But that just doesn't happen. You know, the, um, the, the percent of crimes that end in an arrest has been dropping. No, sorry, the percent of crimes and arrests have been flat, right? So there's crimes right, falling, arrests, so arrests for serious crimes have fallen with them because we haven't gotten any better at clearing crimes. If anything, you know, you, all clearance rates are flat except for murder. Murder has dropped since 1960 from about from 1970 from about 75 percent to 65 so percent right. so you got right so you might
1: you might think like broken windows style policing just means that we're picking more people off the streets we're we have less tolerance and so police are pulling in people when they would have let them go earlier but it, your it data show smaller, that's not true
2: that like we're actually getting better yeah. at it right we have new technologies and dna and all these other things that let's actually figure out who the person is right you sort of see the csi development but you don't really see it translating to more criminals being arrested um and it's not so the
0: number th- of so the number of crimes has been falling. Yes. The number of arrests for those crimes uh, has stayed relatively flat, you're saying? The, the rate the rate of arrests, The rate at right. which they're arresting to solve those crimes right. has stayed about flat. So that can't be what's generating the additional prison population. Right.
2: And even if okay. you add in drug arrests, right? So I had, so then I add in drug arrests for all non-marijuana drug offenses because, again— People seem to think marijuana legalization is going to solve things, but the fact of the matter is, approximately 1.2% of our prison population is in prison on marijuana charges. Uh, 1% for, for distribution, 0.1% for possession. Right? You, yeah,
1: so again, you, you let all those people go and you still have negligible. the cliff. You right. still have the cliff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah.
2: It, so if,
0: if, if the number of crimes getting committed has been falling and the number of the rate at which arrests are being made has stayed relatively flat, where is what's left in the system to account for where these growing number of prisoners is coming from
2: right so most studies have then simply because of lack of data as we said okay is it if it's not crime if it's not arrests is it admissions or longer prison sentences um and they tend to find that, that it's a combination of the two um but you know at least to some extent it's, it's admissions but admissions is hard to know because what's driving admissions right is it da's filing charges is it judges sending people to prison like why are admissions going up implicates lots of different bureaucracies um, so what,
0: what does the word admission mean here? Cause I'm getting what, it sounds like a lingo. It sounds like a term of art. What do you mean when you say admissions?
2: Like, like sending someone to prison, right? So if someone gets convicted, you could send them probation, you could send them somewhere else, or you could admit them to prison. Right. Okay. So, so, you know, their prison population is the number of people in prison today. But that's determined by how many people are flowing into prison, how many people are flowing out of prison. Um,
1: It's like the leaky bathtub again, right? You know, it's It's why is the bathtub filling up? Yeah, is it is it because of the faucet? Is it because of the or is it because the leak is slowed down? A slow drain, yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. so
2: So the dominant theory tends to be that the drain is getting slower, and my theory is that no, it's actually much more that the faucet is being turned on much more full blast. But even as the faucet being turned on, multiple people control the faucet. Right? Is it the DA has to bring the charges? So are they becoming more aggressive? The judges have to actually say you go to prison versus you get probation. Right? So are they becoming more aggressive? Right? So when if it's the judges, is it because they just naturally are more aggressive, or because the legislators passing all these laws that force them to send people to prison? Right? So just saying it's more admissions is a very complicated thing. It doesn't really tell us from a policy point of view who we should be looking at.
0: For each of these steps, it sounds like you need to find a way to. You just raised a ton of questions. And it seems like for each of them, you could, you could, and it sounds like this is what you did, you could figure out, okay, well, if that were true, then here's the behavior or the rate of behavior that you, that you could track. So for example, if, if it were that the number of people getting convicted suddenly rose dramatically, not that the, not that more people are being charged, but that more of those who are charged are convicted, right? Right. So you could look around at different places within the system to see where the f- stronger faucet flow is coming from. Do I have that right?
2: So the idea you can sort of look at each stage and figure out who is the more responsible one, right? Which is, which is what I've been trying to do. Um, now looking, so what I, can, what I discovered is the fact that there's actually a data set that was sitting just sort of out there in plain view on the web that sort of got somewhat overlooked in this debate that allows you to look at felony filings in state court. So now I can look at crimes, arrest per crime, felony filings per, um, per arrest, and then admissions per felony filing. I can't see convictions per case. The conviction data is actually very, very hard to come across. It's actually one of the big problems, I think, in our criminal justice system is that there's almost no data gathered on what the DAs do. So uh, what was the last one you named? You named a series of metrics in the yeah, data sorry. that you... So it's, it's, I can look at crimes, then arrest per crime, felony cases filed per crime, Right, so how many different trials take place for every arrest? And what was the last one? And then the last one is how many people get admitted f- per felony case that's filed.
0: Okay, so take the last one. Right. Uh, how many people get admitted f- per felony case that gets what? So Th- that's brought.
2: That's brought. So if the DA files a case, what's the probability that that case results in a prison admission?
0: Okay. So, uh and and that number, um is what goes on, basically it's generated by what goes on in the courtroom. The felony case gets tried, that person either gets convicted or not, or and then pled. when they get convicted, they get sentenced. Or, yeah. pled. or pled. pled. out. Or pled out, okay. Uh, right, which could also land them in jail. So what happened, with that last number only, what happened? Nothing.
2: So the probability that a felony <laughs> case results in a prison admission is about one in four over the course of my entire data set, which is 1994 to 2008. So during the entire crime drop... If the DA brought charges against you, the probability you would end up in prison in about one in four.
0: Now, the reason that I focused on that for a moment is because and the fact and it's interesting that you say it stayed at roughly the same rate. That's a part that's highly visible to to everyone outside the system, not just the people inside the system. Right. So they can see the case being brought. They can see the trial proceeding. They can hear what happened after the trial. They could hear about a plea bargain. Right. That's all extremely visible. Right.
2: Maybe, right? Except the extent that, nine, depending on how you count it, on the order of 90 some percent of all cases are resolved by plea bargaining. Right? So that's ah. very non profile, right? Very few cases ever actually end up in a courtroom. Um, and the ones that do tend to be the more high profile cases that you would have known about either way. Mm. So even, even that tends to remain pretty under the table. Like the information might be vaguely public, but it's not making the paper. OK, um, so so that part remains very flat. What we observe happening is that the probability the DA files a charge against the defendant, an arrestee, goes way up. Um, the, a felony up. charge. Yeah. So you take a pool of arrestees. It's getting smaller and smaller. But DAs are filing more and more and more charges against them. So you have a shrinking pool of, of arrests and a growing number of felony cases.
1: Wow. Yeah. So if we think about it this way, um, you know, the police, you know, think of law and order, right? right. <laughs> the police come in and they, <laughs> they bring a bunch of, they, they you know, the, the police are bringing in a constant stream of arrestees and the DA is making a decision about whether and how to prosecute. Um, and that, that, that rate of arrest has remained flat, right? Um so we're still trying to explain this cliff because we all we know is that our prison population has gone has spiked, you know, with right. this big cliff, right? And we're trying to explain it. And we look at all these other curves including arrest rate, crime rate, all these other and things they and none of them look, look flat or they're declining or there's some other like thing that's not the cliff. Right. And then you look at this one thing, the number of uh felony uh cases brought by um brought by the prosecutor per, per arrest. arrest and you see the cliff.
0: Yeah. What happens to the number of misdemeanors
2: filed per arrest at, during this stage? Much harder to see. It's a great question. One, hopefully, as I dig more into this, I can find the data on that. But um, harder to see misdemeanors than it is to see to see felonies. They're just not tracked as well. I, I at least I haven't been able to come across them being tracked as well myself. Yeah, they, they, okay. Or at least you know, the, the, the felony data is much more clearly available than, than the misdemeanor right. data.
1: And and just to go back to it and so the if we go back to our bathtub analogy and we're trying to figure out why the water is rising, you know, so quickly or why it's gotten so high, you look at everything else, and it's not that these other things have no impact, because there are a few of them which you say have some impact. You know, war on drugs in various ways may have some impact in various ways. It's just that the cliff is almost entirely due, it seems like this to this one institution, prosecutors who are making a uh who are making judgments about the rate at which and and, and we can get back behind this like is it you know the data you have so far don't suggest that they're doing anything wrong and maybe when they uh, maybe or do i have that wrong are they in other words are they making the same decisions per case they would have made but the kinds of cases coming in front of them are subtly different in ways that the data don't track or do we think that they are just charging more for the same type of crime than they had in the past this
0: is like the aging thing before right so like when you said you know, the population's aging because m- more older people are committing more crimes. Well, maybe it's just that they're being charged more than they were before. Like maybe they were criming in their forties and fifties and we just didn't know it because people weren't getting charged for it. Or that, or that more of the arrests that come in are recidivists. And
1: I don't know, do, do you, can you add any color to, these, to this yeah, wild speculation? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, so I can say that it's a very, I can give the cheesy, it's very difficult, we don't really know yet answer, right? Which is the more truthful part. But I think, you know, a lot of interesting things to sort of unpack in that, right? So what I've been able to look, from what I've been able to look at, looking at distribution of offenses, I don't feel like that's changing all that much. I feel like the drop has been pretty uniform. Um, but it could be that our attitude towards some offenses has changed, right? So one, one reason why I pushed hard against the war on drugs explanation is it's, it allows us to avoid the very difficult question which is that between 1980 and today, over half of all prison growth has come from locking up violent offenders. If you just look at the period 1990 to today, about 65% of prison growth comes from locking up violent offenders, right? There are a lot of violent people in prison, 1.6 million people in prison, over 800,000 of them are violent offenders, which is not to say that that's where they should be, right? It could be that non-prison approaches are better for some violent offenders. But one question a lot of people ask me, and I think it's a great question that I want to look into more is how much of this might be changing attitudes towards, say, domestic violence, right? Before, eh, whatever, so he beat his wife, like, that's just what guys do. Now it's, you know, you go to prison for that. Um, that's a tougher thing to roll back, right? And we might not want to roll it back necessarily. Um, so it might not necessarily be the, the distribution of offenses is changing, but our attitude towards some of those crimes might be changing, towards DUIs, towards towards domestic abuse, which might be, you know, in some ways beneficial, or at least it's a much trickier policy question about how to, how to resolve at least it.
1: Yeah, at least it's a positive story for the prosecutors, right? Yes, um, and, and that they're really just reflecting societal preferences that have changed in our in our attitudes. But have you? you, know, you say you've you haven't seen like a, a you haven't seen the cliff in in looking at you know the various kinds of crimes to see whether that's what's happening. But um, but how granular is that? Because I'm wondering, like, are, are the assaults much worse than they used to be? You know, uh, or
2: no, and and that's really tricky that you know, you, you oftentimes don't have that much granularity, right? You have assault and you have aggravated assault. There is one data set that allows you to dig a little bit deeper. There's this every, it's supposed to be every seven years or so, but the last one was done in 2004. Um, the BJS, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, conducts this big nation, na- nationwide survey of, of state prisoners. So in the 2004 survey, they, they interviewed something like almost 15,000 inmates across prisons all nationwide. And the survey runs, it's got several hundred, probably almost like seven, eight, nine hundred questions on it. Right? And you get down to things like, you know, so you're here for this offense is aggravated assault. Did you use, and then you get a list of like 16 different weapons. Like was the victim like mother, brother, father, sister, stranger, neighbor, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it really does allow you to get down to the very nitty gritty about, you know, not just an assault, but what weapon did you use? Who did you attack? How badly were they hurt? You know, were you on drugs at the time of the attack or not? Were you on alcohol at the time of the attack or not? Um, so you could, and there's a one in 2004, one in 97, one in 91, right? So you could you can see we use those to try to get a sense of, you know, how the, the type of people going to prison has, has shifted over time. Um, but it's tricky, too, because it's a, it's a nationwide survey, right? So your results are only valid at sort of the na- national level. Um, and prison's a very, you know, at one level, it's a very state institution, right? Each state has a different policy. They're, they're st- the states come out differently. It's also very much a county institution, right? And In that the, the main actor here is the district attorney. And the DA, you know, he's a county official. And so he responds to county behavior. Uh, there's a there's a great guy. There's a person out at Santa Clara, David Ball, uh, who's done work looking in California and has basically found some evidence suggesting that, you know, whether or not a county is punitive or not has nothing to do with this underlying crime rate. But everything to do with its underlying politics. Right. So you think there are two counties with almost identical crime rates and one can send a lot more people to prison than the other um, just because one's conservative and one's not one's got a conservative D.A., the other doesn't. And the amazing thing about prison is that while the DA determines who goes to prison, the DA doesn't have to pay for it because the DA is paid for by the county and the prison is paid for by the state. So he gets to send you yeah. to prison for free, basically. Let,
1: let me ask you, yeah, no, I, I, this is, I mean, I think the political economy story is the most interesting here, but I, I, before you, uh, and I know we don't have much time, but before you uh, kind of finish that up, just one more kind of non-political economy possibility here that I mentioned, and that's this recidivism idea like, imagine that you've got a stable rate of imprisonment, uh, um, over time. And then there's some perturbation that for whatever reason, you know, gives you a, a small cliff, right? right? Um, but, and imagine that your attitudes towards recidivism are constant over time, but generally you're more likely to, uh, charge a felony with a recidivist than you are to let them go. Um, then, uh, doesn't this, or a former, a former inmate is more likely to be charged, uh, Doesn't that lead to kind of an, I don't know if it's exponential or not, but it seems like it might be, right? So if you perturb the data a little bit, you increase the number of people in prison without necessarily increasing the length of their terms. Then suddenly you've got more and more recidivists and then more and more charges creating more and more recidivists. Uh, Is that a possibility that anybody's looked at?
2: Yeah, so absolutely. It's actually a way I used to think the war on drugs could matter quite a lot. Right, that you don't go to prison for these drug offenses, but they increase the ch- you No, know, You go to prison for very short times for drug offenses, but when you um, later get arrested for robbery, that makes your sentence that much longer. Um, and right. So I have a paper mm. coming out soon in the Harvard Journal on legislation that actually, in part, tries to tackle this issue directly, at least looking at drugs. Um, so there's this data set that the, the BJS gathers um, that actually looks at each inmate when they enter prison and when they leave prison. So you can calculate sort of exact days spent in prison. And they recently revised it to so at least between the years 2000 and 2012, you can actually observe when someone enters and leaves and then enters again, right? So it's <laughs> not just that I can see an admission in 2000 and then another admission in 2004. I can see if that 2004 admission is that same guy who was admitted in 2000 and released in 2001. So you can mm-hmm. sort of get a sense of people cycling through. And what I find is that most people don't go to prison for multiple times. Um, you no, know, that many times. So the median so for the, the for the cohort which have the most data, the 2000 the year admitted year 2000 cohort, the median number of stints in prison is two. Um, and very few people are above three or four, three. Um, and they tend to specialize. It's either like all drugs or all non-drugs. You don't see a lot of sort of drug, drug, and then some big thing for robbery it just doesn't seem to happen. Um, and, the, the, the consulting firm that the BGS hired to, to assemble this data set themselves just published a paper making a similar point that, you know, most people seem to not go to prison multiple times. Now, in fairness, I can't observe prior criminal records. I can only observe prior criminal admissions. So if you get a felony conviction but don't go to prison, maybe you spent four years in jail leading up to your conviction so you get credit for time served and never go to prison. I don't see those people. I can just see if you've been to prison before, do you end up in prison again? But, you know, it suggests that there aren't a lot of recidivists. And then there's another data set. Um, The survey data set also allows you to sort of indirectly look at prior records in this way. And you see the same thing that most people in prison, so like 65% of people in prison in 2004 had never been to prison before. Um, So your theory is one I actually, until I had data to look at, thought was almost certainly played some role. But it's just I'm having a hard time actually seeing it show up.
1: Um, That's really incredible. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, why don't, why, let's do the political economy part then. I mean, this is the last thing, right? This is, the, well, I don't know if it's the last alternative, but this is, you know, I, there are at least a couple of ways that this could work um, that um, uh, that uh, DA, like th- you tell one story in here about how counties don't internalize all of the costs of their decision to prosecute um, uh, because they don't, you know, they, they externalize a lot of those costs to states and states, for whatever reason, have been willing to absorb it. Um, so that so one story is moral hazard. You know that they just have a hot, much higher preference for imprisonment than they would because of budgets. And then the other story that I don't know that is in here, but I know that I've seen you know us talking about before on on Facebook is that um, DAs like a lot of people are concerned with career advancement and um, and. and or re-election, and the one salient thing in election of such people, or in the promotion of such people, are the people who either weren't prosecuted or weren't prosecuted heavily enough, and went on to commit some spectacular crime, which is then the subject of the relatively few uh, and and it, in the low information environment of a race like that right. or an appointment like that. So uh, I don't know if you want to tackle either of those or both of yeah, those or, yeah, yeah. or, or something but, else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. So I think they're both interesting points. So I think the moral hazard problem is a big one, right? That no. No, it's not just the fact that prison is free for the DA, right? Because it doesn't have to; it comes out of a different budget line. But the alternatives come out of his county's budget, right? So, diversions like drug courts or misdemeanors or probation or those kind of things that sort of jail versus prison or drug courts or, or various programs; those are generally funded by the county, not the state. So it's actually a double problem, right? Send him to prison, don't pay the cost. Send him to something less intensive than prison, you pay the full cost. Right? That's not subsidized in the way the prisons are. So there's a strong incentive to go to prison, plus you get all the tough-on-crime credit and all, all the other things. Um, now, so, when we
0: say, can we, let, let's slow down a second. Say So when you say you pay, um, the, the mechanics of how this would actually work out is, uh, what? A DA would think, during the next budget cycle, the county uh, board is going to be angry at me, because they can see that I'm the one engaging in something that generates a lot of county expenses. Yes. And, now, and uh, so that county board is then going to have to find some new way to pay for it. Maybe they'll reduce my budget um, in order to pay for these other things, or maybe they would think they'd have to raise some kind of fee or tax, and that will get them upset. So it's, it, the, the prosecutor is thinking through the mechanics of the politics within his or her county.
2: That That's a theory. And while I've never... Heard a DA say that I did. I do have a colleague who lives in the state where the judges are elected at the county level, and that colleague did say that judges have told um, told him that they consciously take that into account. That they know that they choose jail over prison in the next election cycle, they will have less support from from you know the political machine of their party um, because wow. they're driving okay. costs up. And so I have okay. to now. DAs are a bit more. Politically independent in that they're directly elected, like the judges, but they're more singularly high profile, right? So they might right. not be quite so dependent upon the county machine in the way the judges are. Um, right. But it still, it still has to be a, a fact. I, mean, I have to think it's, it's playing in their mind. If nothing else, they're going to the same cocktail parties where you know the county commissioners are complaining that you're driving up my budget, right? You're, you're costing me all this, these millions of dollars in jail fees, right? But the, the state—that's a whole different bureaucracy.
0: Um, yeah, I'm just like, trying to understand what the feedback mechanism is. Like, can you know, this, but this is predicated on the idea that there would be a feedback mechanism, and it sounds like there absolutely is one. But yeah. also, has that changed? Like, you know, so that's
2: the big question. Right? That the that, this thing, moral right? hazard problem has always existed, right? Um, I think one thing that might have changed, one more interesting fact I'm looking at takes us up to sort of the state budget level. Which is that, you know, everyone talks about how much state spending on prisons has grown. And it has. It's grown tremendously over the past, you know, 40 years. But so, too, have state revenues overall, right? Between 1950 and sort of 2001, at the very least, even to 2008, basically real per capita state revenue basically is a steady upward line it, it plateaus during the stagflation stagflation carter era and then basically is another steady rising line all the way up until 2001 there's a bit of a drop in 2001 during the dot-com bust then it pops back up all the way to 2008 and then it craters in 2008 um and sort of starts to have been sort of feebly working its way back up since then um so you see this giant boom in prison growth prison spending um but you also see a giant boom in in um in state spending overall, right? Generally correctional spending and welfare spending are positively correlated because the states are getting more and more and more money and they're spending it on, on everything. Uh, so interestingly, as a percent of state budgets, correctional expenditures rise from 70 to 91. But When the crime drop starts to 91 as a share of state budgets, in many cases, it starts to flatten out. Right? And so this, this increase in correctional spending, a lot of it isn't, isn't, you're not thinking up more of the budget. They just grow with the budget. Um, suggest that state officials had very little incentive to push back against correctional spending, right? They're just, they're spending more and more money everywhere. It's about three to 5% of the discretionary budget. Um, you know, they serve, it was an easy political gain, win-win for everyone, right? The DA looks tough on crime. The legislators look tough on crime. It's not that big a share of the budget, you know, and it's important to realize that, you know, state fiscal policies are very zero sum, right? You know, it's not just like, what you want you get right every dollar that goes to the prisons doesn't go to teachers you know teachers unions are incredibly powerful but in an era where budgets are rising you're not really fighting over do i get this dollar do you get the dollar you're fighting over like how do you divide these 10 more dollars that we have and that's a much different kind of politics and it's not surprising that as soon as the economy starts heading south prisons start getting cut because now it's like who gets this one dollar that you both got before and that situation prisons seem to lose to teachers um which is not surprising given sort of the evidence we have on state level interest groups. Um, so you see, sort of this growth. Did,
1: you know, John, did, did they lose to teachers in, at the height of the um, uh, of the rising crime tide, or the the lag from the rising crime tide? So it, like, I'm wondering if in the like you mean in a, the prior era, yeah, like Willie Horton era, like 19, 1988 to 1990, when you know <laughs> this think, was a way. Right. You know, did they lose then, or did they win? I, then? I don't
2: know. It's a good question, and I also feel like those recessions were pretty short lived, right? I feel like. No, the, there's a qualitative, I think, especially the 2008 recession, you know, it's one of the deepest, you know, it's basically, you know, it verges on being a depression definitionally, right? Then I think that's had a much different attitudinal approach. Um, also, I think another factor that I haven't really been able to look at too deeply, but I'm starting to try to think about it, is that I feel like the recessions, especially 80, 90, that era, those recessions were not tied to sort of severe federal austerity approaches. Right. So I think there's more assistance coming in during recessions than there is now. Um, so I think the states and counties feel much more on their own now than they did before. Um, uh, right. which means sequestration and, and general austerity policies and sort of a general desire to balance the federal budget in the midst of a, of a, of a recession. Um, I think that changes sort of the state level politics because so, don't forget, Don't forget. I mean, it's, it's, I think a fact that I didn't know until yesterday. So I don't know, I'm telling you not to forget something. (laughs) Um, But an important fact that we should all keep in mind is a much less condescending, inappropriately condescending way to put it, um, is that about 25% of state budgets come from the feds, state revenue comes from the feds, right? Um, And about 30% of county revenue comes from the state and the feds, most of that from the state, but who knows, money's fungible. Some of that's no federal money feeding through the states to the counties, right? So the, the feds play a significant role in, in local financing. Um, and I think that often is going to prop up things during recessions that maybe now it's much harder to do. And I don't think it's surprising that the recession that finally causes prison populations to drop is the one in 2008. Right? That's in 2010 is when you see the first drop in prison populations. And I think it's because we really started cutting deep into, you know, into state budgets and they, they responded by cutting back on prisons.
0: But the image one might have of the county uh, district attorney At a time when state budgets are generally growing and at a time when the political economy for that individual actor might be, look, it helps me get reelected to be perceived uh, and it's consistent with my values to be perceived as being tough. So I charge more felonies for all the arrests made because that helps convey my my true toughness. Um, in an era of rising state budgets, generally, it's like, you know, binge eating for months at a time while you're happily wearing sweatpants. It's like the pants (laughs) expand and you expand and it, and there's, there's no signal, right? That it's not like you're wearing a corset, um, you're wearing sweatpants. So it's just, everything just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It seems like, oh, this is great. I can just keep gorging myself on my felony
2: charges, um, and, and not worry about it because the state will build the prisons. Right. And so what happens, I think, is, you no know, one, like this year you see California pass Prop 47, which raises the minimum amount you have to steal to qualify for a felony, which is a direct effort to sort of chop off the DA's ability to make these things felonies, right? You, if you steal 600 bucks, the DA simply cannot charge you with a felony anymore. It's just, it's not a felony theft amount, right? Felony theft is now $950, not four hundred nine hundred, not 450. And that means you can't charged with a felony, right it's so really an effort to, to get at that
1: um, I, I have the image of all of these people sticking you up who are giving you change
2: <laughs> okay, right. don't, don't, don't give me that, that 10 bucks. I put yeah.
1: right, You give it back. You know? right, so this <laughs> right, is 950 no, no. bucks. So Here's nine, your. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>,
2: exactly.
1: <laughs> um, John, I, we, we are at the limit uh, of what I told you we would keep you uh, in advance. But uh, is there, it, whether it's the political economy story of anything, is there anything we would be remiss if we didn't include as part of this story uh, right now? At least for John Faff's first appearance on Oral Arcade. Yes.
2: I don't think so. I mean, I think the basic story is one of, you know, what has happened as crime has fallen and prisons have gone up, what's been driving it. And the, the actor kind of got lost in all the earlier analyses where the DA, was a DA. And now it's becoming clear. It really is a DA who plays this incredibly powerful central role. Um, I would just say in terms of elections, if it's an electional, if it's an electoral story, it's not one of actually keeping the DA's job. DA's almost never lose elections. Um, when Brooklyn just voted out their DA this past year, um, he became the first sitting DA to run for re-election and lose in over a century. Right, like they just, and that's sort of indicative. Yeah, of but sort of, look,
0: maybe this is why they don't lose is because they're very aggressive. So they, it's not about it's not about I didn't get unelected before. It's that I want to make sure I'm never even yeah, in you any you gotta any to explain, danger. But you got to explain the cliff.
2: Like right. you got you got to explain why there's a change in, in behavior. And and what, but what, right. what might be more interesting is to look at to what extent is it that they're not looking to the net. So one thing we think might explain the cliff is that maybe, or at least during the the post-crime drop change, is that what explains, maybe maybe it's not trying to remain the DA, is that they're looking to be attorney general, governor, congressman, Mm -hmm. senator in a way they didn't before. And it could be that the crime, the rising crime, gave them that political opportunity, right? That they Mm -hmm. went just from serving like the DA, who was just the guy who prosecuted crimes, but in an era of high crime, he became like, you know, Mr. Dung Dung, right? He's the guy who serves there on the wall, right? You know, sort of the law right. order. He is the line between us and and sort of total disorder. I um, think elevates the political cloud of a DA and perhaps gave them broader ambitions, um, or at least is a theory, right? That tries to tie and sort of all the, the, the like the moral hazard problem. It's always existed. This has always been the case, right? Um, and yet, so why did it become worse now? I'm not sure if it did, but maybe there are other political factors that changed their their incentives. But like I said, the, the, the DA kind of skirted any responsibility for so long in sort of the academic literature that no one's really looked at them very closely. And I think people are just starting now to really turn their attention to really understand what motivates DAs, what why they act the way they do, what what's what, how to explain their change. But there's no good explanation now, just that we really need to really start paying very close attention to what DAs do and, and why they do it.
1: Well, the Texas D.A.s are not exactly thrilled to hear you say that, apparently. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think it's important to say, and, in, 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 you know, in the end here, like you're not prejudging whether their changed behavior is good or bad.
2: Right? No, and, and I would say, you no, know, as one of those academics who never practiced, had I decided to practice, probably the only job I could see myself doing would have been as a D.A. Right. So I'm not, I guess within the criminal law world, you know, a lot of people there take a very mm-hmm. dim view of what DAs do and are very, you know, sort of, they view any sort of incarceration as problematic. That's not my, my biases. And I, you know, no crimp person writes other biases creeping in. My biases are definitely, not, are definitely on the more, by academic standards, sort of, you know, favorably inclined towards DA side of things. But they've just, becoming clear there, whether for good or for ill, they are the, they are the major engine of, of what's going on.
1: Awesome, John. This has been really, really great. Fascinating. And I, I loved kind of digging through your papers again. I it, it's clear I'm going to have to have you. Uh, um, I'm going to have to invite you back to join us to talk about the the paper about empirical legal studies more broadly, which I found really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but there's not enough time now, so um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, probably for you or for us. So, but thank you so much for joining us. Really yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. Thank
2: you so much. This was great. Thanks. Great I, to talk to you.
1: Hope we get to catch up again soon. Yes, definitely.